Welcome to Free and Fearless, the story of the first parole trial. Episode 3, Execution and Escape. This is the final episode of a three-part series about the first parole trial, which took place in the Netherlands during the Second World War. In the previous episode, following the arrest and execution of Ari Adix, 23 people involved in het parole, including his friends and accomplices such as Franz Goodhart, Rob Dalma, and Jan Zwanenberg, were rounded up and imprisoned. What followed was months of starvation and torture in various concentration camps before a hasty trial in December 1942, in which 17 of them were sentenced to death. The other six were ruled as abgetrennt, meaning they were given a life sentence to be spent in a concentration camp. Amongst these were Hank Rose in his 20s and 18-year-old Karl Wittmann. On the evening of the 4th of February, 1943, at the concentration camp in Fucht, 13 names were read out to the prisoners and they were informed that they were to board a bus the following morning. The belief amongst them, based on rumours that had been circulating, was that they would receive clemency and instead of being executed, they would be sent to a camp in Germany. On that evening, after hearing of the transport the next day, Rob Dalma wrote a letter to his family in his diary, telling them, I've just heard that those condemned to death are to be transported again. Where to? I don't know. Why is also unknown to me. What will happen to us? Are we going to a prison? Or to Germany? Or to the bullet? He proceeded to write a last will and testament in case he never saw his family again and divided his belongings up for them. He went on. I'll stop. My thoughts aren't all there. They wander around in the same circle. Shall I see you all again or is this the end? Never have I so known what life is as at this moment. I want to live. I want to see you all again. I want to. I have planned so much that has not yet happened. I've gained the experience of someone 50 years old. I now know what love for parents and brother and sister is worth. And all that I have experienced, just to get the bullet now? A bullet which, with one blow, ends everything. No, 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 I don't want to believe it. I can't believe it. I'm not allowed to believe it. Do you hear it, Father? Mother and everyone, even if you don't hear anything more from me, remain full of confidence. Be brave, because I will come back, and we will be reunited. A thousand kisses from your Rob. Rob Dalmer was known for his leadership and his optimism, his willpower and self-control. He had needed all of it to endure the time of imprisonment and to help his friends through it. His writing shows how close to breaking point he was, his mind torn between hope and despair. One of the four names that was not read out to be transported was that of Franz Goodhart, 
He was one of the original founders of Het Parole and the chief suspect in the parole trial. The Germans knew this, and the rest of the prisoners did too. Surely if any of them would not receive leniency, if one of them was definitely destined for the bullet, it would be Goodhart. Yet the other three names also not read out were just minor figures, people working on the fringes of the newspaper's production and distribution. If there was any clemency granted, then surely they would be on the receiving end. It was confusing that they would now be grouped together with Goodhart. But so it was. On the 5th of February, the fates of these different people diverged. 13 men stepped onto that bus, while the others remained behind in Fucht. With their hopes still high, the 13 were taken by the bus to a prison in Utrecht. But then, upon arrival, at 10.30am, they were informed that they would be executed at 2pm that day. They were given paper, and each was allowed to write a final letter to their loved ones. For more than a year, they had been imprisoned, tortured, starved, worked to the bone, and in what limited communication they could have with their families, they had tried to assuage their worry and fears. Now, with finality, they knew what their fate was to be, and that it would be upon them in just a few hours. What would you say then to your loved ones, knowing that it would be the last thing that they would hear from you? Jan Zwannenberg began his letter. I've just heard that my sentence will be carried out today at two o'clock, which means I still have two hours left to live. It's impossible to know what went through the minds of every man writing their letters. We will never know if tears ran down Jan's cheeks or if he lingered before putting the punctuation mark on this opening sentence on this countdown timer to his death. We can only imagine how heavily this first line may have sat on Jan's mind and soul, based on how we might feel having to write the same. Although the prisoners supposedly maintained hope that they would not receive the death sentence, right until this last morning on the 5th of February, they must have thought about their potential execution constantly. We can only assume that they must have questioned whether it was all worth it, whether their intent in helping to spread het parole was worth the ultimate price which they now had to pay. To face this and to come to terms with it would have been a struggle for all of them, especially for the younger ones who should have had the majority of their lives ahead of them. For his part, Jan Zwannenberg felt at ease in this regard. He wrote, I am at peace, and I see my fate calmly. I have done my duty to you and to humankind, and I hope that my sister and brothers will also fulfill this duty. I expect it of my friends. Rob Dalma was also attempting to come to terms with his fate, to be at peace with the beliefs that had brought him down this path. In his final correspondence, he gives us an indicator as to how most of them were facing their fate. This is my last letter. 
This morning, we went on transport from Fuch to Utrecht, and there we're told that we will be shot at two o'clock. With pride, I can say that we all met this terrible news fearlessly. Rob always seemed to be concerned about others, despite whatever hardships he was going through. The swirl of thoughts and emotions that he'd experienced revealed itself in his final communication, and yet so did his empathetic nature as well as his philosophical approach to their plight. He continued, It is now nearly 12 o'clock, so just a few hours and it will be over. Over? I don't know, but then I will know. Then I shall truly know whether an afterlife exists or not. Oh, actually, this is not even that important. It is much, much worse for you, mother, and you, father, and my dear sister, Ree, and brother, Derek. But always remember, and let it always comfort you, that we died for our ideals, brave and fearless. Everyone must die, and me too. Why be sad about it for any longer then? You must not mourn me, but remember me. There are people here with me who leave wives and children behind. Is it not much, much worse for them? But yet, they also hold their heads up high. The men were not given much time to write their letters, to compose the last words that they would be able to leave for anybody who cared about them. After they were finished, they were assembled, along with seven others, not from their particular group. These included some who worked for and with Het Parole, but also other resistance fighters. One was a guy called Krein Brewer, who in his younger days had been an AJCer and who was known to members of the Uddix group. However, he had years before gone to fight for the Internationale forces in the Spanish Civil War and returned to the Netherlands a communist who then, during the occupation, became engaged in many and various forms of active resistance. Now caught, he was being reunited with old acquaintances as they all shared their final hour of life together. Around 1.30pm, these 20 men were put in vans or a bus and driven about 15 kilometers out to Susterberg Airport, huddled amongst the forested dunes of that area. Once there, we don't know the exact process of how things took place. Surrounded by small shrub-covered dunes and a bit of thin forest, Were the 13 lined up together, each standing next to a man they knew and had gone through hell with? Or were the whole 20 mixed into random groups? Did they have to kneel or stand? Were they blindfolded? Or were they looking into the eyes of those who would end their lives? The answers to these questions we simply do not know. In his last letter, apart from his emotional farewell to family, Rob Dalmer had also made mention of his brothers-in-arms, of Carl Wittmond, Henk Rose, and Ari van Soest, who had been abgetrennt, and of others facing the firing squad with him, like Nico Snyders. That in his last words, he found a place for them, shows how much they all meant to each other. Many of these men had grown up together, 
faced life together and were now facing death together. It is from each other that they drew the strength to get through it all without breaking down. Dharma tells us how we have comforted and strengthened each other. We have spent unforgettable hours in sorrow and sadness, in contemplations and in joy. Have I not had a good life? Yes, I can say that in 24 years, I have done something, something to help make the world a better place, according to my convictions. In this passage, Dalma is telling us that, at least at the time of writing his final letter, he had no regrets for a life full of family, friends, and staying true to his convictions. On a cold winter's day in the fields of an obscure airport near Utrecht, at around 2pm on the 5th of February 1943, these 13 men were executed by firing squad. Jan Zwanenberg, Rob Dalmer, Jaap Melkman, Nico Snyders, Vibo Lanz, Wim Gertenbach, Jo van Leeuwen, Herman Maynardi, Franz Robber, Willem Tello, Lambert Rima, Lou Caressa, and Jules Farvaik. They and the others shot alongside them were unceremoniously buried in a mass grave. While the 13 were driven away from Fucht on the morning of the 5th of February, Franz Goodhart and the three others had at least temporarily been given a reprieve. None of them knew why the chief suspect in the parole case and three fairly minor level figures had been separated from the rest. For the eight months after the executions, Goodhart remained in prison, red circle on his clothes, marking him as a flight risk due to his condemnation. It would have been constantly reminding him that What extra time he had received was not infinite. As he waited for whatever was to come, he desperately thought of ways to get out of this situation. It must have been tormenting, especially as whilst in the prison camp of Fucht, he would see transports leaving, often with condemned prisoners just like him, but whose time had now come. He said of it afterwards, I've seen dozens of comrades taken away to the firing squad. One was silent, but in bitter despair. Another cried and gave free rein to his disastrous grief. A third clenched and cursed his fists in impotent rage. There were also those who went to meet death with an unshakable faith in God. A few had fallen into total apathy. Those had actually died before they were dead, so that they had to be taken away by the arm. But there were also those who had been proud, laughing mockingly, full of contempt for the guards, bloodhounds, and executioners. Was it my turn now? The parole network and others who knew Goodhart were also working very hard to get him out of prison. They raised money to try and purchase his freedom, but this was never going to be accepted. They then looked at escape plans, and one began to form. From early on in prison, Goodhart had sought reprieve through illness. He was asthmatic, 
but with his wife and family doctor's help, he also succeeded in obtaining professional certification that he had a brain disease. His case was put up for review in January, and that is the reason why his name was not amongst those read out on the evening of February 4th. In March, he had to be admitted to hospital with angina. Whether or not this was a deliberate ploy, he certainly turned it into a usable one. The decision on his case as a review was approaching. If he couldn't find a way to abstain and prolong the inevitable, he would be executed. Luckily for him, the doctors at the hospital found a way to help him. An infectious disease would, under the strict bureaucracy of the German occupation, disqualify Goodhart from being put on any transport. So the doctors said that he had hereditary syphilis, which was a master stroke. This delayed his prescribed fate for now. Amongst all this, a system of getting messages from Goodhart inside to people on the outside had been devised through a sympathetic carpenter from Brabant who, as a civilian, worked at the camp. His name was Hari Amons. In his typical dry style, Goodhart described him. Brave guy, Hari. A real Brabander. He used his job in the camp to bother the Germans as much as possible. He was always walking around with a plank of wood on his shoulder, constantly searching for a favourable opportunity to be unseen by the SS and to distribute smuggled food inside, to hand over clandestine notes, and to receive verbal messages for the outside world. He obviously never did any work. The few nails he had struck here and there had only served to give the German overseers the impression that he was making a terrible effort. Good on you, Hari. One day in Fucht, Hari got a signal to Goodhart that he had to go to a certain place, on the limits of where those with the red circle on their chest were allowed to venture, passing each other slowly. Once Hari had looked around to ensure that they were not being watched, he whispered to Goodhart, and he said that the doctor sends his greetings, and that he must not lose heart. People were working busily for his release. It turns out that Hari had every day possible gone somewhere in Den Bosch, the nearby city, and met with a high-up member of the Parole Underground Network. His name was Gerrit van Hoven Goodhart, a.k.a. The Doctor. Van Hoven Goodhart was a journalist before the war, active in the resistance during the war, and after the war, in his role as the first UN High Commissioner of Refugees, would actually win a Nobel Peace Prize, in 1954. But at this stage, just hearing about him was a relief for Franz Goodhart. Now to know that he had this network trying to secure his freedom. That is, of course, if he was still able to feel anything other than constant hunger. In March, Hari got the message to Goodhart from the doctor that a plan had been hatched and would occur on the following SS Laundry Day. Every two weeks, the dirty laundry of the SS in Camp Fucht would be collected by a laundry company called Bex van Noonen. A driver for the company, a man called Grint, was approached one day by the doctor and an accomplice, one Lumbeck, 
who was an important figure organizing logistics around the illegal parole. These two men asked Grint if he would be willing to help Goodhart escape prison. Grint agreed. It is amazing to think about the amount of luck needed to survive as a resistor to an all-ruling, murderous, fascist regime. People engaging in deliberate and illegal acts, frequently trying to subvert the control and power of the totalitarian authority, absolutely had their proverbial backs against the proverbial wall. A plan might be concocted, but a plan is just a plan. So intense was every situation of rebellion or defiance under the Nazis that things could and would change suddenly. Your plan may flop because of some random and unpredictable variable. In a moment, everything may hang on the whim of chance. You may have to suddenly rely on a stranger, unidentified as friend or foe, for your very survival and for the survival of your cause. This laundry truck driver, agreeing to become an accomplice in helping an enemy of the state, was himself risking his own life for something that, it turned out, he believed in. Freedom. The plan to help Goodhart escape was this. On the usual laundry morning, a Tuesday, the van would enter the camp. In the back was an empty washing basket and some civilians' clothes folded up for Goodhart to put on straight away. For him, even the idea of getting out of the prison clothing with its red circle of doom would be exciting. Goodhart would wait near the stack of laundry, waiting for a signal from Grint. There was a light inside the car, which Grint could flick on and off from his seat. This would tell Goodhart that the coast was clear. And as Grint continued loading the laundry, Goodhart would crawl behind it into the van and clamber into the empty basket. A tenuous plan, at best, but a plan nonetheless. However, as mentioned, in these situations, you need luck on your side. You need people to turn a blind eye, give you a chance, let you succeed. Another Dutchman, an engineer from Rotterdam, who was in charge of the camp's clothing department, noticed Goodhart and decided not to give him a chance. This quote-unquote good fatherlander, as Goodhart would describe him, notified the SD who proceeded to interrogate Goodhart, shouting at him and making a commotion. Goodhart remained steadfast, however, and denied knowing anything. Luckily, and for some unknown reason, they did not think to arrest Grint or even look in the van. Grint drove away with a bunch of dirty Nazi laundry, an empty washing basket, and some unused, neatly folded clothes. Those involved in the plan were shattered. It had been a good plan, they felt. They had found a willing accomplice, and yet Goodhart was still in prison. And the only thing holding him away from a firing squad were a bunch of falsified medical reports. So things looked bad for Goodhart. For the next few days, he heard nothing. Things looked even worse when Hari was fired for being a terrible and lazy carpenter. Suddenly, Goodhart had no friend inside and no reach to the outside. In May, the Germans ordered that he get an official medical exam, so not one done by his family doctor. 
Luckily for him, the physician happened to have been a distributor of the news brief von Peter Hun, Goodhart's initial newsletter, right at the beginning of the occupation. So, for good measure, he literally doctored the blood tests to show that Goodhart did indeed have an infectious disease. He may have been unlucky in escape, but here, the strength of his network had succeeded. Soon, Goodhart received more good luck. Hari reappeared. Sneaky Hari from Brabant. Although he had been fired from the camp, nobody had bothered to take his pass from him. So, he just used it to get back in every now and again, and to again communicate the hatching of a new plan of escape. By the end of July, through the help of some Polish prisoners, Goodhart had been able to collect appropriate clothes to disguise himself as one of the workers who went about the camp. Most importantly, they could go in and out of the camp. Hari left a plank and some tools in a shed, which was in the outer part of the camp, where those wearing, of course, the Red Circle of Doom could not go. If Goodhart could just get in there, he could change out of his prisoner's garb into workman's clothes and, with plank and tools, make his way out of the camp. Nothing says, I am a carpenter, like carrying a big plank. There was an obstacle, however. Prisoners were arranged into groups which were under the command of other prisoners. The prisoner who ran the group able to go to the outer limits was a communist from Rotterdam, called Malipard. For this plan to succeed, Goodhart would need to convince Malipard to let him out of his allowed area, to ignore the Red Circle of Doom so that he could reach the shed. Again, this plan would rely on the consent of others. But Malipard refused. Once more, Goodhart's escape attempt was foiled. Goodhart was distraught. His friends, who had been laying in the bushes outside the prison, hoping that this plan would work, were risking their lives for him, as were others, and they were all getting nowhere. The spectre of death marched ever closer, and in his urgent desire for freedom, he became a torn man. Finally, he was informed that on the 2nd of August, 1943, eight months after he had received the penalty of death, he would be transferred. Like always, he did not know where to, and he did not know to what ends. At 7am on the assigned day, the 2nd of August, Goodhart was told to get ready. At the appointed hour, he presented himself, alongside 12 other prisoners who were also being transported. In the hallway of the prison's command centre, two Dutch policemen appeared. There was a short one and a tall one and they had been given the job of escorting the men to wherever it was they were going. Goodhart couldn't believe that it was only these two in charge. Frantically, desperately, thoughts and options ran through his mind. These were Dutch police. Could they? Would they maybe help him? Is it possible that any good Dutch policeman, that is, those against the regime, could still be working for the Germans? It didn't seem so. The short policeman held their official transfer papers in his hand. He faced the prisoners and barked loudly. You will go quietly. If anybody makes any trouble, I will shoot. Understood? The policeman marched the men out of the highly secured inner camp into the outer perimeter, the part which Goodhart had been longing to get to for months. 
They kept marching through various checkpoints, past groups of prisoners working under the abusive supervision of SS guards. Goodhart looked at the Dutch policeman escorting them and thought he recognised indignation on the short one's face upon seeing the treatment of the prisoners. Eventually, they left even the outer camp. For the first time since his arrest, 20 months previously, Goodhart was walking outside of the walls and barbed wire of a prison. He marvelled at the beauty of the trees and the wide open space. It seemed like a summer's paradise. A short distance past, having reached the road running by the prison, the group stopped. The short policeman took his bit of paper and read aloud eight names from the men gathered. Goodhart's was not amongst them. The tall policeman then spoke up to those who had heard their names called. You lot, stand over here. The group now divided into eight and five. The short cop faced the eight and said, You are free. Go quickly and make sure you don't find yourselves in here again. With these words, the men did not think twice, but turned around, backs to the rest, and set off as quickly as they all could down the road away from the horrible place in which they'd been torturously confined. These men were tired and starving, emaciated and weak, but they fled like rabbits who knew what it was to be hunted. The remaining five, including Goodhart, along with the cops, set off walking in the same direction. Goodhart could feel the freedom. He could taste the opportunity. He must convince these Dutchmen to let him go. If he did not try, he would be signing off on his own death warrant. So, taking a gamble that these were indeed good men, he told them who he was, about his work with Het Parole, and about the death sentence which they were no doubt marching him towards. The short one walked him ahead of the others, where they could talk out of earshot. You must let me go, Goodhart blurted out. To his amazement, The officer agreed, but he explained to Goodhart that he could not let him just run away here. If he did, there would be a whole lot of trouble and angst for him to have to deal with. He told him that they were heading to the police station in Fucht. Once there, he would find an opportunity to unlock a door leading outside and allow Goodhart time and a chance to escape. He explained which door it would be and when he would have an opportunity to reach it. This was incredible news and music to Goodhart's ears. He had been through a year and a half compiled of horrible, painful and hungry days set on an inevitable path towards death. The two previous attempts at escape had failed him because despite all their planning, at the times when he had needed luck, luck had evaded him. Now, At the very last moment, and with no planning, luck had decided to make itself reacquainted with him. There had been a very, very, very high chance that he was looking at the last remaining hours of his life. And now this policeman had stepped in to do what he could so as to prolong that life. According to the policeman's instructions, Goodhart would have at the absolute most about 15 minutes to leave the station, flee into the town of Fucht undetected, and find sanctuary somewhere with someone who would 
not then just turn him back in. The policeman explained that members of the NSB in these parts put placards announcing their allegiance in their windows so that those houses without them would almost certainly contain people willing to help him hide. It was a cunning but a fragile plan, and it would require this newfound luck staying right by Goodhart's side. There were SS officers waiting in the front room of the police station when they arrived, and the taller policemen stayed and smoked cigarettes, chatting with them. The short one took the prisoners into the back room and then left. Goodhart almost immediately stood up and said to the others that he was going to find a toilet. None of them seemed to take much notice. He walked out of the door to the hallway and followed it along until he reached the door that the policeman had described. His heart was thumping in his chest and his stomach was turning. He willed himself to not surrender to his anxiety and to the wobble in his knees. When he reached the door, he did not falter, but opened it, stepped out into the late morning air, and closed it behind him. He had taken his hat with him, and he wore it to hide his prison camp shaved head. He clasped his hands behind his back and trod off, trying with every fibre of his body to defy his nerves and not simply run. He sauntered off into the town centre of Fucht. Suddenly, he noticed sounds that stood out to him, like birds chirping, an anvil striking metal in the distance, soft, village-like noises surrounded him. He passed the church, and still no sign of alarm from the police station that was slowly getting further and further behind him. But he could not relax, as the sounds of that alarm would certainly come at any minute. He had to get off the street. A few hundred metres past the church, he saw a sign for a doctor. Taking his chances once again, he walked up to the door, breathed in deeply, and pressed the doorbell. It was answered by the housekeeper, a kind-looking young lady. She informed him that the doctor was in town and could take up to an hour before returning. Goodhart looked anxiously behind him and turned back to ask if, Perhaps his wife was present, and could he please talk to her? Whether his anxiety was obvious or not, and whether this determined her response, it is impossible to know. But finally, the young lady said, Yes, just come in, sir. He stepped into the doctor's house. To his great relief, and with an unfathomable sense of security washing over him, the girl shut the door. This moment was truly transformative for Franz Goodhart. He suddenly felt renewed. His life was worth living. And there now existed the prospect of a future, rather than the faint wisps of hope for a miracle that he had been living with. The next moments must have been surreal. He took off his hat and, noticing his shaved head, the young lady instantly realised that he had been a prisoner in the Fuchs camp. Oh, I understand, she said. You're coming out of the camp. Well, then you are at the right address. There are often people here who have been released and who have no money to buy a railway ticket. Madame will certainly help you. Do not worry. The housekeeper, whose name was Cynthia, called the doctor's wife. After a short conversation, she hung up 
told Goodhart to make himself comfortable in the kitchen at the table and that the doctor's wife would be with him shortly. Relax, she assured him, for now he was free. Meanwhile, she would make him coffee. Goodhart sat there amazed and in awe at this woman who was about to give him coffee. He remembered that good things happened in the world and how much they contrasted with the fate prescribed him months before. Zum told her, death. Goodhart thought of the other men whose names had also been read out with those words, but who would never get to drink coffee again. After not long, Mefrau de Yacher walked into the house. She looked with surprise at the condition of this man sitting at her kitchen table, who then stood up and introduced himself. Goodhart told her immediately that he had escaped from the camp and needed help. She recognized the urgency and the danger and insisted that they go upstairs to talk further. Sincha, excited that he was not a release prisoner but actually an escapee, locked the door and they walked up the stairs. After listening attentively to his full story, Mefrau de Yacher told him that there was already a search going on. A roadblock out of Fucht had been set up on the main street and soldiers and police were scouring the farms outside the town. He would be safe here for the moment but would need to find a way to leave. She wanted to wait for her husband to come home to further figure out a plan. But when he arrived, the doctor was unwilling to help. He thought Goodhart was either an agent provocateur or even if he was legitimately who he said he was, was likely to just land the lot of them in a concentration camp if they did help him. What proceeded was an extremely heated exchange between the doctor and his wife, during which she made it perfectly clear that with or without him, she was going to help Franz Goodhart. She called Sincha downstairs and the two women began discussing what they might do. Goodhart did not know anybody in Fucht and only one man in nearby Den Bosch. He looked up the man's address in the phone book, and they decided that they would try and head there. Goodhart would take Sincha's bicycle, and Mefrau de Yacher, on her own, would bravely cycle well ahead of him as a scout. If she saw anything wrong, she would get off her bike and walk back as a signal to Goodhart, and then he must run to the first house he could. All the while throughout their planning and waiting, Dr. de Yacher stomped about the house, casting angry glares in Goodhart's direction. The women, however, they just ignored him. Eventually, Mefrau de Yacher came to Goodhart and told him that it was quieter on the streets now. Now was a good time to leave. They walked outside, where Sincha was waiting with her bike. She did not mind, she told him, if she never saw it again. Goodhart was overwhelmed by the whole experience. He muttered his thanks and goodbye and made his way towards where Mefrau de Yacher had already left from. And with that, Franz Goodhart completed the most Dutch prison break story ever by cycling away to his freedom. Goodhart reached his destination in Den Bosch and a friend who would help him. He would stay in hiding for the rest of the war, not returning to Amsterdam until late 1944. After his escape, he struggled with his memory and suffered nightmares. 
constantly waking up, he would put it, as terrified as a child in the dark. He worried that he would not recover the same use of his mental capabilities as before. At least, however, he was out of the hands of the SS and could begin what would be a long recovery process, dealing with the internal and external traumas that he had endured. Franz Goodhart had been a main figure in the original distribution of Het Parole, and in the subsequent trial by which those involved were punished by the Nazi regime. Yet, he had somehow managed to avoid the ultimate punishment. For this, he thanked the taking of risks, the luck that fell on his side, and his dependency on a network of people, new friends and old, who were also willing enough to put their own lives on the line. But luck is a fickle thing. Yardi Beckman, for instance, the politician and member of the editorial team of Parole, with whom Goodhart had been arrested on that icy beach in Schäfeningen, but who was not even part of the parole process, himself ended up dying of typhus fever in Dachau. Six of the 23 people who were tried in the parole process had been ruled abgetrennt. That is to say, they were spared the bullet but they were given a life sentence in a concentration camp. There, they faced a prolongment of the suffering that was concentration camp life, starvation, beatings, and barbed wire, as well as the added prospect of gas chambers. It's a question worth asking whether this was truly a more lenient sentence rather than facing a firing squad. Under Nazi law, apparently it was. Somewhere along the way, after being separated from the group of 23, the Abgetrennt were, as the word literally means, split up and sent to suffer separately from each other. Jaap Frank, who was Jewish, died in the extermination camp of Sobibor. Barzelay died in Mauthausen and Case Theufsen in Natzweiler, which is in the Alsace, not far from the Franco-German border. It was a camp which had been set up primarily to contain so-called Nacht und Nebel prisoners, usually resistance fighters who had been arrested and taken without anybody knowing. They literally disappeared, as the term Nacht und Nebel translates into the night and the fog. The three others, C.J. Wittmond, Henk Rose and Ari van Soest, remained imprisoned until the end of the war all managing to survive. In the summer of 1943, Wittmond had been sent to Nutzweiler. When the Allies were approaching in the autumn of 44 and Nutzweiler was evacuated, he was sent to Dachau. Ari van Soest also ended up in Dachau. Remarkably and horrifyingly, these two AJCers were still in this awfully notorious concentration camp on the date of its liberation the 29th of April, 1945. But because of quarantine and processing measures to get prisoners back to their homes all over the continent, they were not released until a month later on the 27th of May. They had spent over four years in Nazi prisons for the crime of delivering a newspaper, and they were still there a month after the Nazis had been defeated. 
Hank Rose stayed in Fucht until September 1944, at which point he was sent to Sachsenhausen and put to work. On the 21st of April 1945, 35,000 prisoners were ordered to start marching away from the advancing Allied armies. He said of it later, In the distance we could hear the cannons of the Allies going off. We marched with 35,000 men. That went until the 1st of May. Then we were all freed. There were 13,000 men left. The rest had been shot or succumbed on the journey. Coming back to Amsterdam, the three reunited and connected with family, each other, and friends, including other AJCers who had been fortunate enough to evade capture. Wittmond arrived in his neighborhood and found that everyone in his street had collected money for him and celebrated his survival by organizing a street organ, a draaiorgel in Dutch, to play outside his house all day. Having to listen to one of those street organs for hours on end may not seem like the best way to spend your first day of freedom at home, but I suppose it would be marginally better than Dachau. For the next year or so, Wittmond and Rose travelled around the country together. They met family members of their friends who had died in the concentration camps, and they filled them in with information about the fates of their loved ones. On the 19th of December, 1945, the bodies of the 13 who had been shot on the 5th of February, 1943, were reinterred in a specifically built memorial cemetery near Blumendahl, along with others who had perished during their resistance to the Nazi occupation. In the days after they had been executed, The families had been sent letters by the German officials, informing them in German that the sentences had been carried out and that the families could expect their last letters shortly. The families were given conditions on how they may eulogize their lost ones. They were not allowed to publish a date of death, nor mention that they had died suddenly, nor include phrases like, our dear son, but merely our son. Remembering them with honour was forbidden. Shortly after the war, however, family members began receiving letters from the Dutch authorities requesting that they come and identify personal belongings which had been found so that they could positively identify the remains of the victims of the parole process. The reburial was a chance for the families to get closure. Exactly three years to the day, after the sentences had been announced. At the beginning of this series, we spoke about the importance of symbolism, how symbols transfer emotion from those in the past to those in the future, about how the meaning behind them can transform, and so too the strength they have or the impression they give upon the people observing and interpreting them. This story has been full of symbols. When the Nazis marched into the Netherlands and occupied the major cities of Holland, we saw people engaging in self-imposed preemptive censorship, book burning, an act that usually symbolizes the negating of others was now protective against the oncoming authoritarianism of the new regime. 
On the other hand, some of the first expressions of resistance were based around the symbol of the carnation, usually associated with the exiled prince Bernhard. But then it changed into a rallying point for disobedience on the day of his first birthday into the occupation. The men who were tried for delivering Het Parole had engaged from the beginning in symbolic resistance. As well as hiding razors behind their carnations, they organized and began taking actions like plastering stickers and posters over things like Nazi propaganda posters, Fokker aeroplanes, and military trucks, thereby trying to turn the symbols of the Nazi military machine against it. Newspapers, which in free democracies tend to symbolize freedom of speech and of information, instantly came to represent something else as soon as they were taken over by the Nazis and brought into the realm of Joseph Goebbels' unfree press. In a Nazi regime, state-run newspapers are symbols of fakeness and misinformation. In the end, the actions and consequences suffered by all those involved in the production, printing, and distribution of Het Parole, as well as any other illegal content during the occupation, had greater meaning than just the words that had been printed on the newspaper. One surviving AJCer from the Ardix group, who had not been captured or imprisoned, Hans Volder, said later of Het Parole, it meant more than just an illegal newspaper. It was a symbol. The underground press in the occupied Netherlands was symbolic of the population's unwillingness to simply lay down and accept the occupying force's exertion of power over them. Every time an individual rebelliously flung a roll of paper over a fence or shoved one into a letterbox, they were conveying meaning to the rest of the population that went beyond whatever particular content was in that particular edition. That is a lesson to be learned in how to counter fascist totalitarianism. Bit by fragile bit, they struck back. Finally, memorialization is also a symbol. The memory of the 13 who were executed in 1943, as well as Ari Adix, who had been shot a year earlier, were at first fated to be dishonored. The first memorialization of Ari had been a poster immediately after his lonely death that had been stuck on street corners around the city announcing his demise as an enemy of the state. The 13, their bodies cast into obscurity below the ground, were excluded from being remembered in obituaries with love or anything coming close to approval for who they were or what their lives had meant. Those who had been abgetrennt had been sent to disappear into the night and the fog. Their fates would have remained uncertain to their loved ones. To the Nazis, all these people's lives and actions symbolized intolerable resistance, so their memories must be erased. Once the war had ended, and the grasp of Nazi social and political narrative had begun to be removed from the Netherlands, the 13 who were shot on the 5th of February 1943 could now bear different symbolic meanings. Now, they were allowed to represent things like courage, defiance, and freedom. With the re-interment of their and other resistance fighters' bodies, to a special place, 
the Ida Begrafplatz in Blumenthal, the meaning and experience, the symbolism of their lives could become something to be conveyed to future generations. On the 5th of February every year, since the war ended, a procession of ceremonies is held to remember the 13 who were shot. For many years, the survivors of the parole trial, such as Franz Goodhart, Henk Rose and Karl Wittmond, would have joined family members and other friends whose emotions over the grieved men would have been tied to personal memories and intimate knowledge of the individuals. As the years have gone by, however, and as time has taken its inevitable toll, fewer and fewer of those who personally knew the memorialized are themselves left to remember them. So the meaning of even this memorial is changing. We attended the ceremony in 2018. It was a cold, windy, but clear winter's morning. Various groups, relatives of the men, school students, government officials, members of the current parole staff, as well as other journalists and us. Two random Australian dudes stood and reflected in silence on what these people's lives and deaths symbolised. As time has passed, the memorial service has become less of a personal reflection of those familiar with the people who sacrificed their lives. The ceremony on February 5th has also become a memorial to the ideals that those men represented. Through this series, we've attempted to pay homage to the events and the characters surrounding the first parole process. Each person may have had their own drive or purpose, their own personal motivations behind their actions. But today, we see in those actions and their consequences the extent to which freedom of speech and freedom of press are fragile things and how they must be protected, be maintained and supported and, whenever necessary, fought for. Especially when movements arise which try to take them away. And that should never be forgotten. To that end, there is a permanent reminder at the cemetery in Blumendahl, engraved in stone, above the remains of Franciscus Robber, one of the 13 executed as a part of the first parole trial, are the words, Always remember what I fell for, and through which system. Thanks for listening to Free and Fearless. We hope you've enjoyed the story of the first parole trial. It's been researched, written, and produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. We are Republic of Amsterdam Radio. For more information on this series, as well as other projects we have created, go to republicofamsterdamradio.com. Thanks to Stichting Democracy and Media for making this possible. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit MFM.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.